The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk and should not be considered legal, business, or medical advice. Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Maze podcast. My name is Mike McLafferty. I'm the CEO and founder of MGM Advisory and Educational Services. Today, we're going to continue our discussion of healthcare current events. We're pleased to have as our guest on the podcast today, Mr. Gary Branning. Gary is the president of Managed Market Resources. He's responsible for business development, specializing in strategic planning for pre and post products and managed markets, also innovative approaches to complex healthcare policy, access, and reimbursement. Mr. Branning is also an associate professor at Rutgers Graduate School of Business and a guest lecturer at the Blanche and Irwin Learner Center for Pharmaceutical Management Studies. In addition, he works with Rutgers Executive Education Program and serves as an instructor for healthcare-related topics. Gary is also a national speaker on U.S. healthcare trends, access and reimbursement, and policy. Gary, welcome to the podcast. And anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we start going over some of these current events? First of all, Michael, thank you for having me. I enjoy our conversations always. So as my background indicated from your review of it, that was quite a good coverage of what I do in the industry. I'm also an editor for a magazine called American Health and Drug Benefits. I spend most of my career, Michael, in the area of trying to help pharmaceutical companies get their drugs reimbursed. So I'm also work with providers through the executive education program, which is leading us to our conversation today. And I'm just happy to be here, Michael. Ask your questions and let's get into a little bit of a dialogue here. We have a couple of topics here we both thought might be interesting to our listeners. And this is a question that I think everyone is grappling with. What do you see as the new normal right now? I'm glad you mentioned the word change because change is the only constant, Michael. (laughs) And so you really need to expect the unexpected. So if we're going to talk about the new normal, we're inching toward a endemic versus a pandemic, which could be the new normal for how we operate in the U.S. as far as delivering healthcare. And when you think about it, what's that mean to all of us? First of all, a lot of the protections that were created by the the national emergency, those protections will go away. So you're going to see also some shift in the benefit designs. And we've already started to see that because of the pandemic. If they're commercial beneficiaries, the reimbursement's a lot higher. If they're Medicare beneficiaries, reimbursement's pretty good. If they're Medicaid, it gets to be lower. And if it's uninsured, uncompensated care could be on the rise because a lot of the protections that are in place right now are protecting those that are in Medicaid. So many could lose their insurance as a result of the end of the healthcare protections. Since we're moving into an endemic versus a pandemic, we still have to be conscious of the fact that we're going to have worker issues. And we're going to have workflow issues. How do you isolate workers? How do you make sure that you get all your healthcare delivery done with maybe some limited staff and separating those that have COVID-19 and keeping them isolated from others, staffing 
quarantines. It's not over. So we need to figure out how to operate in the new normal. And for provider offices, Michael, there's nothing more important than workflow. So the new normal means readjusting your workflows to adjust to the new normal. So that's going to come also with delivering care. There's talk about protections for telehealth that will extend way beyond the pandemic. And that also brings us to the changing perceptions of the consumers, which have started to like telehealth, right? So does the reimbursement for telehealth, is that less than reimbursement for an in-office visit? We all know the answer to that. It is. We're going to see some blending of the two. So there's going to be revenue challenges. There's going to be cash flow issues. The asset values of some of these organizations are going down. You're also seeing venture capital moving in and buying specialty practices. We're moving into a, like I said, change is the only constant. So expect the unexpected. But if you know what types of things can change, you can prepare for them. So I just thought I'd share a few of those. I've noticed with a lot of the providers that I deal with, it's become a constant challenge for them almost daily where people who are working in, uh, whether it's a hospital, physician practice, surgery center, they become COVID positive and with one of the new variants. And now they're out maybe five to seven days come across a number of big firms that, uh, which is interesting, I've seen firsthand where people took a positive test, let's say on a Sunday, and they called in and say, hey, I tested positive over the weekend. And the, uh, the HR people are saying, okay, fine. Do you have any bad symptoms? Not really. Maybe I have a cough or a little cough or something, a little headache, slight fever. Okay, good. You should be able to come back Friday. <laughs> it's just, so it's a very different mindset. And most of the firms involved in these types of discussions require people to have gotten vaccinated. And so they're not worried about any significant issues. Telehealth is definitely here to stay. What I've seen is the senior population especially has taken to it. The other area that is arguing to make the reimbursement the same as an in-person visit is that it's being used successfully with critical care patients. So patients who have some disease that requires a number of visits, it's turning out that that's working out well for them. And only within the last year or so, CMS has approved home care as if it's hospital care. And that's really catching on in the country. But I do agree with you that, and I think you can look at when a lot of these protections go away, the public health emergency period ends. One of the biggest things with telehealth, which I think is going to come into play, is compliance with the HIPAA requirements. People have reached out to me and I told them that whatever their platform is they're using for telehealth, make sure it's HIPAA compliant before the end of the public health emergency. I think a lot of this new technology got pushed up. People were talking about it, but nothing ever happens. It's Maybe, amazing how fast we could actually respond when we want to. Most of the time, healthcare moves very slow. But during the pandemic, healthcare moved really quickly. And the funny thing is that healthcare still, and for good reason, doesn't have a good reputation as being one of the more technology astute industries. (laughs) A lot of it is to the HIPAA compliance that you're talking about. So that's what slowed things down a little bit. But when it came to to instituting telehealth, it's like, we got to do it today. And things move really quickly. What amazes me though, which could be a real challenge for the providers that I know and am very friendly with, is that depending on the generation 
that is coming to the physician's office, there's personal relationships with some of the older folks, not so much with younger people. They don't really care which doctor. They'll stop by a CVS, they'll go somewhere else, which takes it away from the practices that that we grew up knowing about. What's amazing to me now is that this telehealth opportunities also created opportunities for organizations that can deliver things at the snap of a finger. Amazon has got involved in telehealth. Now, they're geographically based, but they're planning. Amazon never stays where they start. So they're intending on sweeping that eventually across the country. And that creates another challenge for our providers because that's going to pull patients away from providers, which also pulls a revenue stream away from them. So it's just another thing that we have to prepare for to make sure that we create those relationships with our patients. And that's something that Physicians have started to learn to do better, too, because we know that the patient experience is something that needs to be focused in on. And the better that patient experience is, the closer the people feel to their physicians, the more likely they're going to go back to them and not really just say, "Okay, Amazon, find me a doctor that's available right now. But it's just these times are going to start to create new opportunities as well as challenges. I agree. One of the things that doctors tell me is most of them require the patient to come in the office for the first visit. The reason that is they want to make sure they get the appropriate diagnosis. But like you said, they're trying to develop a relationship. And at the primary care level, not the specialty care level so much, but at the primary care level, once you've got diagnosed, the treatment plans in place, whatever medication you need, you get, let's say, whatever tests need to be ordered. If you, as a patient, if you're getting better, you probably won't see the doctor again. You're going to see a nurse practitioner. You're going to see a physician assistant. Only if you're not progressing or there's a new issue, then at that point, you'll probably be asked to come back in the office. But the thing I've seen in surveys with young people, they want the ability to set up their appointments. And if they don't have that quick access, they're more likely to just move on to a clinic or something like that. For practices that either aren't interested or aren't that astute from a technology stand, they're really at a disadvantage going forward. I think you're right. I think they'll lose patients. They'll lose revenue. They have to be very friendly online. We all got educated by the remote control. If you don't like what you're seeing, push the button, watch something else. That's how fast things move. You're right. And a lot of these remote type devices, being able to take your heart rate, blood pressure, things like that, more firms allow patients to go home with these remote devices so that they can either send real time or they can send at different intervals information, but basically have been set up a real time. And quite frankly, Apple watches and some of these other watches are turning out to be game changers for health, because uh, not only if you work yourself, you could eventually download it to your physician who could see much better data than coming in for one visit and taking an EKG. If you give the doctor 30 day EKG data versus one visit. And when I've spoken to people, there's still a lot of practices say, no, we're not really in a position. We don't have a platform to take that data yet, but we're getting there. And that brings us to another area too, because you mentioned primary care. And, and what the, we also learned from the pandemic is that there were organizations that had already made a strong foothold in value-based care and others were still stuck in the fee-for-service world. Those that were in value-based yeah. care, which were getting paid to keep people healthy, a different mindset that, hey, wait a minute, if nobody comes to my office, I still get paid for keeping patients healthy. That's a different model than getting paid for every service that you perform. But those that had shifted a lot of their business to value-based care, they did pretty well 
during the pandemic. Those that were stuck in the fee-for-service world said, we better get involved in value-based care pretty soon. So the pandemic has also accelerated value-based care. We still have a lot of practices and organizations that have a foot in each camp, part fee-for-service reimbursement, part value-based care reimbursement. The shift, the tide is starting to turn, and it's going to help us focus a little bit more on keeping our population healthy. And that's it's going to require all kinds of services. And I like how you mentioned, if you saw a doctor, the next time you might only see a nurse practitioner, value-based care, that's a result of practicing at the top of your license. So you don't always need to see a physician, but people don't realize that. So we also have to retrain the consumers and the patients is how to value-based care works because they don't understand it. Well, where's the, I thought I always saw the doctor. Where's the doctor today? She's always takes care of me. Where is she today? We're just, I'm just going to check your vitals. That's all you need to do today. You're right. There's a lot of education. One of the things, and I agree with you, this movement away from volume to value is definitely where we're headed. I've gotten involved a lot with payers and providers on these types of contracts. And what's interesting and encouraging is almost every organization I've ever dealt with who moved to value, the quality of the care improved. There's no doubt when you look at the quality measures before and after the quality measures got better. The challenge, and I'm going to say the problem right now with why more haven't moved quicker is on the payer side. And that's because the payers, basically there's two components there to get a bonus, a revenue dollars, some additional money. Part of it's quality and part of it is cost. Correct. But that's what the payers tell you. But in the contracts, when you go through them, let's say you exceed your quality measures, you meet them all. But you don't hit your cost target, you don't get paid. You don't get a penny. Correct. It's ridiculous. And I said to the payers, this makes no sense. If the providers are improving their patient outcome and they're seeing people sooner than later, they don't wait till they get acutely ill, there's preventive things that are being done too. It's going to reduce your cost as payers in the long run. It's funny you say that there's some really tightly run systems, and they challenge CMS exactly on what you're saying. We've already taken all the inefficiencies out of our system. We can hit all of our quality targets, but we can't bend our curve on the cost targets. It's impossible because we are already as efficient as possible. It's all about cost effectiveness, but if you have spent years preparing to be cost effective... And now you're asked to get rewarded for lowering those cost targets, as well as hitting your quality measures. You're talking about asking way too much of the providers. You're absolutely right. And part of the reason it's unfair to the providers is they don't control all the costs of their supplies, their medication, their staffing requirements. They don't control a lot of that stuff. And representatives from the payer groups, when we were putting contracts together or revising them, sitting in front of me going through this with them and having the people from the payer groups, all the major payers you could think of in the country say to me, you know what? You're right. But right now, our national office is not taking that position. They're not changing the way these things are set up. I would have quarterly meetings with major payers. And at the quarterly meetings, we would go through quality targets and cost targets. And I had a few situations where First quarter, meeting both targets. Second quarter, good. Third quarter, good. Okay, so now three quarters. And for purposes of who's your peer group, it's typically similar practices in your region. 
I had at least 50% of the time, we would get now fourth quarter done. We're getting our annual, I'll call it a report card from the payer. And the payer says, we missed our course goals. I say, now, wait a minute. You came here every quarter, first three quarters, and you told us it wasn't close. We were doing 15, 20% better than our peer group for three quarters. We were expecting you to get a bonus payment. But then the payer says, I'm sorry, we, you're not going to get any bonus. You get nothing, but you did a great job on outcomes. Thank you for hitting your quality measure. Oh, it, it's very difficult for the physicians involved to hear this type of feedback and then say, wow, you know what? Let's move to this value approach 100%. Let's move the whole practice to it. This is a great deal. And what I ended up doing for a lot of groups I represented for years is we refused to eliminate our fee-for-service contracts. So they refused to increase our fee-for-service rate but we went into value-based care contracts so we could learn about it. But then we knew there was 50-50 chance we might get a bonus every year. But at least we weren't in a situation where 100% of the practice was at this tremendous risk. And again, these contracts, is, and for our listeners' benefit, uh, they can be, the basic one is if you get extra money, great. If you don't make your goals, you don't get penalized. And then you work your way up. You could get penalized if you don't make your goals, but you could make more money if you make your goals, those types of things. Most of the practices, even if they are part of health systems, a lot of times they won't do this. They're just not willing to place a bet with the payers that they're going to provide them with what they believe to be transparency. It hurts trust too. It hurts trust between the providers and the payers. We're starting to see some pay provider organizations evolve where they do collaborate, but it's not there. It's not there yet. And the thing that I realize payers are companies, they have shareholders, public firms. Their goal is to increase profits, increase payments out to their stockholders, value to the stockholders. But the, the profits in dollars, a lot of these big firms, they're billions of dollars per quarter. And that varies if it's self-funded versus fully insured, which makes a difference too. So that's for their fully insured lives. And you would hope that going forward, there would be some consideration. I always took the position with the payers, let's put some dollars on both sides for quality and cost. If you made 50% of your outcomes, you get 50% of the bonus on, on the quality side. If you made 50% of your cost goal, you got 50% of the bonus, but give the provider some money. It's almost like how company bonuses work. They'll they'll give multiple targets and depending on which targets you hit, that's how you get rewarded. But this is this all or nothing creates distrust between the providers and the payers because they're committed to the quality. And then when they don't receive their bonus, it's heartening. Whenever I've talked to payer reps, I've always told them, please don't, don't talk about collaboration with providers. If you're really collaborating, you're setting up a system where you're helping people step-by-step get better and better, and you're rewarding them along the step-by-step process. Any closing comments you want to make here as we wind up this podcast talking about really the new normal that's going on in healthcare? Part of what I've been thinking a lot about lately is that, and it's been around for a while, but we haven't figured out how to optimize the triple aim, lowering costs, improving quality, as well as providing access to care. And I think that if we can optimize the triple aim 
I think there's an opportunity for us to move healthcare forward. What Donald Berwick came up with way back in 2014, I think that is a, it's a calling card for us to be more effective. So I think if we can start to ensure access, improve healthcare equity, address social determinants, we have a lot to do. So we just need to make sure that we have everyone engaged from the consumer, the patient, all the way through the healthcare systems to the payers, to the providers, so that we're all in this together. We can't keep working in silos and expect healthcare to resolve itself. I agree with all those different parties. And unfortunately for healthcare in our country, the one other party, which would be influenced by everybody you just brought up, but I think is important, is our legislators. It's a two-year cycle. So uh, as yeah. soon as the midterm elections come, legislation's done. And then like when you watch the Trump administration, so they had four years where at mid-year mark, you know, we had a change in Congress, which kind of took away the legislative power. So legislation really didn't get passed. So then they moved to regulations, which they can control because that's part of the executive branch of the government. And we may see this again in the midterm elections coming up in November. So it's just cyclical and the cycle's two years. So that's another thing is we have to put aside is healthcare shouldn't be a partisan issue. It should be a bipartisan issue and people need to get on the same page. I agree. And obviously it would be better for everyone if the industry could just work together. There wouldn't be a need for this constant back and forth with laws changing and regulations coming out. Well, uh, Gary, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Michael. Really interesting topic, looking ahead on all the changes we think will come, the new normal, new technology, moving away from pure volume to value. And for our listeners, you can sign up online and then you'll be advised when a new episode is available. You can also email us at thehealthcaremaze at gmail.com with your comments and suggestions. Thank you very much for listening to the podcast today.